Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. If I've never met you before, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Madison, and it is a joy to have you all with us this morning. And these are some amazing, deep, profound, colorful shocking scripture passages that we just read. So I'm excited to try to wrap our minds around the sense of all these scriptures with you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, meet us in your word this morning. We pray that the presence of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the insight of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus would manifest to us this morning that in the middle of a blizzard in a college auditorium, we would encounter you. And we pray this in his name, amen. Um, There was a trilogy of young adult dystopian novels that came out in 2008 called The Hunger Games, which you may have read or seen because it sold 50 million copies and was a massive trilogy of movies. And yes, it was young adult fiction, but in my opinion, Susan Collins, the woman who wrote the books, is a master storyteller. And if you know the basis of the story, the context is that there's this totalitarian regime called Pan Am, which has split up the country into 12 districts. And District 1 is the capital, and they live in opulent, opulent, indulgent wealth. And everybody else is super starving and poor and oppressed. And in the movies, at least, they do this fantastic job of creating the contrast between the two people. So everybody in the oppressed districts are literally scraping bread out of mud holes to try to eat. And then there's this one scene where in the capital, everybody's partying and they have all this amazing clothes on and literally halfway through the dinner, they drink something so that they can throw up in order to keep on tasting and drinking the food that they wanna taste and eat. So you have this crazy contrast between these two groups of people. One is impoverished and suffering One is partying and laughing and having this amazing time. And the story of Hunger Games is the reversal of those fortunes. It's about an uprising. It's about the flip of these two groups of people. Susan Collins sold 50 million of those books. The population in in England and the UK, I think, is 60 million. So that's a lot of people. A lot of people bought those books because we've always had those two groups of people. There's not a single nation or city in the history of the world that has not at some point had those those two people, those groups. The story of the Bible has these two people. Uh, God's people begin in slavery for hundreds of years. They know what it's like to be hungry and to suffer and to weep. Other times in the Bible, God's people are blessed and given all this amazing stuff, and they end up participating in oppression towards other people. God sends prophets to call them out. So in the history of the Bible, in the history of our world, in the history of Wisconsin, we have these two groups of people. The Hunger Games is a super extreme example, uh, almost to the point of it not working as an example, because we're like, yeah, we don't live in Pan Am and whatever. But... I just want to put forward to you today that this is our reality. So regardless of how much this hits you, it is our world. Amen? And it goes deeper than political oppression. Think of any context where there is people laughing and loving life, and people on the outside of that 
who are mourning, who feel an ache. That happens at high school cafeterias, right? It goes deeper than that. All of this should prepare us, I hope, to hear the insane thing that Jesus is about to say, okay? So grab your bulletin and flip with me to the gospel page, which should be like six or seven or something. Nine, Nine. thank you very much. Um, This passage starts off with Jesus healing people and teaching. People are drawn to the power of Jesus. It's really clear. They want, they're drawn to his power. So some people are physically ill and diseased. Some people are demon-possessed. And Jesus has power over everything. But then he says this. Let's start in verse 20. Is everybody there? And he lifted up his eyes on all these people. And he's talking to his disciples. And said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is Jesus entering into our world, or you can imagine the world of Hunger Games, and pointing to the oppressed people and saying, hashtag blessed. (laughs) And then pointing to the people who have everything and saying, alas, how sad, how pitiable is your state. The word blessed in Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek, is the word makarios, And its usage in the ancient world is very much similar to our notions of hashtag blessed. It has to do with material wealth, with circumstances uh, and relationships and everything being good and rich and fruitful. The word woe in Greek, I think you pronounce ouai or huai, and it denotes this state of intense pain, displeasure. This is where we get woe is me. It means a state of deep sadness and a state of misery. So Jesus gives four qualities for the blessed. (laughs) Hungry, poor, weeping, and hated. And he gives four qualities for those with woes. Full, rich, laughing, and liked. He says the former are blessed, the latter are in a lamentable, pitiable state. I don't need to tell you that this would have shocked people, right? This is consciously Jesus flipping everything upside down, almost to the point of being offensive. Okay, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to do three things. One, I want to talk about what Jesus is not saying. Two, I want to talk about what Jesus is saying. And three, I want to talk about the point of what Jesus is saying. (laughs) Does that sound good? All right, so what is Jesus not saying? Whenever Jesus says something super extreme like this, it's really easy to 
take it out of context or to use it or to twist it or to misunderstand it. And as a, just a teachable moment, one of the ways that you can learn what a certain part of the Bible means that's, that's a tough nut to crack is to let other parts of the Bible interpret it for you. So you kind of let Jesus clarify himself, and we're going to do that this morning. To begin, Jesus is not saying that poverty and sadness are good in and of themselves or that wealth is evil in and of themselves or happiness. Historically, people have loved to latch onto this idea that Christianity keeps the poor in poverty and think of like Nietzsche and Marx. They all hated Christianity because it was weak and it, Jesus says these kind of things. And then also sometimes people get this idea that Jesus is like a rabbinical Che Guevara who has come to like take all people of wealth or means or happiness down. Both of those are wrong and they miss the point. I don't have time to get into it, but literally Jesus' entire ministry and the entire history of God's people are about feeding the hungry, bringing down injustice, making a more equal society. Jesus' whole ministry is helping and healing and feeding people. We have come here today to have our hunger met. Amen? Okay, so Jesus is not about condoning poverty is good in and of itself. Also, there's tons of people in the Bible who are really wealthy, who humble themselves before God and are people of deep and wonderful faith, and Jesus accepts, accepts them entirely. Cornelius is a guy in the book of Acts. Uh, there's a Roman centurion, the chapter after this, who Jesus says shows greater faith than anybody in Israel. This would have been a high-ranking wealthy guy in the Roman army. So Jesus is not saying wealth or happiness or anything like that is evil in and of itself. Good on that? You can ask me more about that later, but that needs to be cleared up. The second one is Jesus isn't talking about just physical wealth and poverty, and he's also not talking about just spiritual wealth and poverty. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives a similar teaching, but he expands it, Matthew does, to have a spiritual sense. So Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, so some people will say, see, it's all spiritual. He's talking about those who are hungry in their heart. It's meek. This isn't about politics or justice or anything like that. But other people are like, nah, uh not so fast. Luke chose specifically to just say poor, hungry, weeping. There's no amplifications. But again, to go in either of those ditches is, I think, to twist the Bible's meaning here. It's both. The biblical vision of our personhood ties together our spiritual and our physical state always. They both affect each other. You can't separate them. And I think Jesus is taking all of this in. He is talking about the materially poor. I 100% believe that Luke chose to say, blessed are the poor. This is a huge theme in Luke's gospel. But notice how he finishes both sections. He finishes it by talking about the prophets. And their condition had to do with their relationship and faithfulness to God's word. So it's both. Okay? Tracking? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying here, as he does many other times, and we're going to unpack this, that there are two types of wealth, satisfaction, joy, and honor. And one is greater than the other. And sometimes they're in a battle in your life. So we're going to work through each of these pairings and talk about them. 
And before we get into this, I just want to have a pastoral moment. This is a really sharp passage. It, it has a lot of stingers. There's a serrated edge to it. And I think if we read this and we're not convicted in some way, we're either not listening or I'm not doing my job well to make this clear. Um, so we want to come under the sharpness of what Jesus is saying, but also I want you to know that I am coming under it with you. I know I'm like up on this stage that like lifts me up and it's already kind of weird. I'm not like speaking down to you with this. I want us all as a community to come under it. Does that make sense? I want to make sure that you're not feeling me like do this. It's Jesus' authority that we all, myself included, come under. Okay, let's begin with poor and rich. I want to read you a parable. Let's let Jesus clarify Jesus here, okay? What does he mean? Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. This is Jesus a couple chapters later in Luke 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's like, I got so much stuff, I don't even know what to do with it. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy retired when he was 45. He's like, this is amazing. But God said to him, fool, <laughs> this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, here's Jesus, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Did you catch that? You can be rich in this life and you can be rich towards God. You can pursue and lay up treasures for yourself on earth. You can pursue and stockpile treasures in heaven. One is temporal and you can't take it with you. The other is eternal. And I love how Jesus uses language like take care, be on your guard. He's like sleep with one eye open of the temptation to desire wealth and success and prestige. It's coming after you. It's silent and deadly. Watch. Because money isn't neutral. I love how Timothy says it's the root of all kinds of evil. So I think the essence here is that the pursuit of love and the pursuit and love of wealth, when it's a priority, causes all other things in your life to get in line behind it. And Jesus says that's dangerous because it inhibits your desire to become rich towards God. And that's why Jesus can say this. And I quote, No one can serve two masters. This is Jesus, for either he will hate the one. And love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, unquote. Jesus is making that seem like a lot more intense tension than I am. Can't serve God and money. So Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You don't have that roadblock. And he says, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation now. You're at the party, but the roles are reversing. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in America needs to feel the sharpness of that. All right, second one. Hungry and full. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the fool. What in the world? 
This is a really tough one to wrap our minds around, but I think the best way to summarize it is this. God has come, as Mary says in her Magnificat at the beginning of Luke, which we talked about before Christmas, to fill the hungry with good things. God is in the business of feeding us and filling us with the most satisfying. You know that scene in Hook where the kids all imagine the big feast of food and, and then they have a huge food fight? That is what God has come to bring for every single one of us, okay? Listen to this in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come up to the, the hook table and start chucking icing and eat everything you want, God's saying. God's come to bring a feast. And God offers it to everyone and you catch it's free, but not everyone receives it. It has no price. In Isaiah's context, nobody really responded to that beautiful prophecy. And oftentimes, the people who respond are the ones who are physically hungry, because that sounds good. This is fascinating. A couple examples. Classic example is Jesus in the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days. Anybody ever fasted for 40 days? I haven't either, right? You can imagine you're hungry, and what does Satan do? He tempts his hunger. He says, turn this bread into stone to quell his hunger, to quench his thirst. And what does Jesus say? No. Jesus puts a stop on it. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, which says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is Jesus cultivating a physical hunger to keep his spiritual hunger sharp. Isn't that awesome? Here's another example. One time Jesus meets a woman at a well who is materially poor, and she's also socially outcast because of her sexual history. And Jesus classically loves this woman. He opens up himself to her and talks to her when nobody else would. And he offers her living water from which she would never thirst again. Guess how the woman responds? And I quote, give me this water. <laughs> she wants it, and she gets it. How cool is that? Later on, two chapters later in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to a bunch of leaders who kind of have everything they want, and he's telling them that he's the bread of life, and if they eat it, they'll never die. Same context, same story. He's offering the same feast, and guess what they do? They walk away. Everybody leaves him. They don't want it. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be full. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Weeping and laughing. Let's think about that one. I think with this, there are essentially two types of joy you can pursue. And uh, you might see a trend here, but one is earthly and fleeting. One is eternal and endures forever. To wrap our minds around this, I want to think about that 2 Corinthians passage that Michelle read which is such a bomb. We need to just preach on that for like five weeks to really wrap our heads around that. But Paul's saying in that passage, he's talking about himself, we're afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. But then he says in verse 16, if you're looking at it, so we do not lose heart. Why? 
for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's so good, he can barely stand up under it, is how much is like how he's describing it. As we look, and here's the eternal temporal thing, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus offers joy. Jesus endured everything, the Bible says, for the joy set before him. And it is like the greatest mirth, overflowing, gut-wrenching, laughter, most profound, eternal joy you can imagine. And Paul's saying, even though we experience this stuff now, we look to those things. It breaks in, even in our personal affliction, because it's so good. But it fights with the, the, the temptation to only seek a temporal joy. And this is why Ecclesiastes is so crazy. Were you listening to that reading and all the insane stuff it said? It says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It, it's very contrary, but here's what I think Ecclesiastes is saying, and it loops in with what Jesus is saying. The mantra of the house of feasting is basically forget about it, let's party, like shut up and dance. Let's just, let's just eat, drink, and be merry right now. And sadly, at the risk of sounding like a curmudgeon, this message is being blasted into our nation through AirPods daily, hourly, right? Pop culture makes its living off of selling us the, f the feeling of the house of feasting. It's not a reality for anybody. It's just a feeling. Tonight we're young. Let's set the world on fire. Promise me no promises. Like, shut up and dance. I could give so many examples of this. And again, I know I sound like a curmudgeon, but it's true. One of my favorite examples is from a band called The Chainsmokers. And if you don't listen to pop music, that is a real band name, and they've like taken over the world. It's like two frat boys with a laptop, and they're like, they're huge. And one of their biggest songs, which is very catchy, is called Closer. And the tagline is, we ain't ever growing older. And they just sing it over and over again. And the world like, isn't thinking about it, and we're just like jamming, like, we ain't ever growing older. And Ecclesiastes... From 3,000-year-old deep reservoirs of Hebraic wisdom goes, that's foolish. <laughs> yes, you are. And if you read Ecclesiastes, the message is, you should go to a graveyard, chain smokers. <laughs> because you're going to die. <laughs> I also love, I think in Ecclesiastes, I just noticed this, it says, it's better to listen to the voice of wisdom than the song of fools. I actually think that was a line. I'm not judging the chain smokers, okay? I, anyways, feel, feel my, uh, my posture there. There's fleeting joy and laughter. There's eternal deep joy and laughter. Jesus is not downing laughter and joy or parties. Jesus is the king of the party, right? He's the master of the feast. He's the one who turns water into wine, but it's for eternally. It's for eternal deep joy. So blessed are you who weep now. You shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now. You shall mourn and weep. Okay, finally, being hated and being liked. I think this is, has the sharpest edge, and I think this is what really nails down and ties together everything is Jesus is saying. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're hated and reviled and excluded on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you. Alas, how sad and pitiable is your state when everybody likes you. 
He's not saying Christians have a license to be annoying and rude and tools, okay? Some Christians do this. The gospel is not an excuse to be an unlikable person. It also doesn't mean it's bad if people like you, okay? The key to this is the prophets, which is what he ties it down in both, both sections. The great prophets, all the big ones in the Bible, John the Baptist was a prophet, Jesus is a prophet. They were all hated and persecuted and many were ultimately killed. And they were hated because they held fast to God's word in a culture that didn't. They were faithful when God asked them to be faithful and speak out, even when they knew people were going to hate what God had to say. They were those who metaphorically showed up at the Hunger Games capital party and said, like, tap the microphone, all of this is founded on injustice and immorality, and God is going to be the judge. How do you think the capital would respond in that situation, right? That certainly dampens your party. The House of Feasting is not like that. So you either throw them in prison or you kill them, which is exactly what they did. Many times it had to do with social justice. People were being oppressed. Many times it had to do with sexual immorality and idolatry. That's how John the Baptist got beheaded. He called out one of the Roman rulers. Jesus' counterexample is the false prophets uh, in the second half for the woes. And they were loved because the false prophets figured out how to work the culture and play it and say smooth and nice things and be promoted. They were given halls of power, garlands. They were invited to the temporal feast. We all know what this feels like, right? You don't get out of this if you would think of yourself as conservative or liberal. It's true for every single one of us, and the gospel has something to say to everybody. We are all prone to the temptation. We all know what it's like to be at the party or the dinner table or the classroom and to feel the tension and the opportunity, and then either to be faithful or to be liked. There are two types of honor. This is really serious, guys. There are two types of honor. One is from God, one is from people. One endures, one is temporal. One brings about justice and true worship. One enables immorality and injustice. It perpetuates it. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and when they spurn your name on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If I could summarize these eight blessings and woes, here's how I think I would do it. Blessed is the ache. Blessed is the ache. Blessed is any type of hunger or longing in your life that would lead you to true food, to true healing, to true honor. Blessed is the ache which keeps you from the deadly traps of this world that would catch your eyes and steal your sight. Blessed is the ache which opens your mouth and your heart and your hands to receive the good gifts that Jesus is bringing. Blessed is the ache. Jesus is saying, you don't know how good you have it. I know it doesn't seem like it because you're being oppressed in the Hunger Games, but it's going to flip. 
Blessed is the ache. I want to finish this morning by talking about the point of what Jesus is saying. Why is Jesus blessing the ache? Why is he bringing the woes and the blessings? And the point is this, I think. Comfort and warning. And all of us have an ache, and all of us are tempted to do these things, okay? I'm with you. So all of us need the comfort and need the warning, okay? When I say this, I'm not thinking certain people need this, certain people don't. You need, I need both the comfort and the warning. Amen? Amen. Okay. Comfort. Jesus has come to offer us this morning the deepest, most profound comfort anywhere that we feel an ache. So listen, if you are here this morning and you are hungering, if there are longings and pains and uh, dissatisfactions in your life, if you're not in an it crowd, if you feel like you are on the outside and weeping while other people are laughing in your life, for whatever reason, hear this morning Jesus blessing and sanctifying your ache. Hear him saying that can draw you and lead you to beautiful, good things. The feast is served for those like you who feel the hunger. Blessed is the ache. And all of this hinges on an eternal perspective, right? Every single one. Because our world, like the Hunger Games world, is the story of an uprising. That's what the gospel is. It's full of love. It's full of non-judgment. It's free grace. It's the most backwards type of uprising there is, but it is an uprising. And the conditions are going to flip. And Jesus says in that day, something he loves to say, which is, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Amen, Lynette. Amen? Okay, comfort. Feel that sanctified. Receive that blessing from God. Even if it's not fulfilled now or satisfied now, feel Jesus blessing that. The second word is a warning. It's a woe. All of us are prone to do this. We need to understand our temptations to pursue earthly satisfaction and honor and wealth and joy. But we need to hear Jesus saying they aren't substantial. They do not endure. They are like chaff, like Psalm 1 said today. So Jesus says, woe. Not to crush us, but to warn us and to invite us into the life of God. And since we all struggle with these things, again, if we aren't convicted, then we're just not listening. We all struggle with these things, but God graciously gives us tools and opportunities to cultivate the ache. It's really interesting. After he says all these things in the Gospel of Matthew, guess what he goes on to talk about? Fasting. It's a way that you keep your physical hunger sharp. Guess what else he talks about? Almsgiving. Giving away your money. We have ways, the church has had ways that we have practiced as communities for thousands of years of ways that we cultivate the blessed ache. That sounds like the most pretentious article, Cultivating the Blessed Ache, a new book by Father Scott Cunningham. But seriously, um, last night, I just in my personal reading, I read this in Timothy. This is amazing. This is about the rich. Timothy has really harsh things to say about the rich. But listen to this. If you are successful, if you are a person of means, that is a blessing. But listen to how Timothy says you can cultivate the ache. As for the rich in this present age, 
Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're thinking, I actually have a pretty full stomach and I, I've done well in my life, I have a lot in my bank account, that's awesome. But it's just getting the order of these two things right. It's cultivating the ache and seeking that eternal joy, satisfaction, and everything above the temporal. That's what the woe allows us to do. It's Jesus shaking us out of that and inviting us into the life of God. So, Christ Church Madison, we are a people who cultivates the ache. Our job is to do that for one another and together. Guess what we're going to do on Ash Wednesday? We're all going to be invited, as you are able, to fast together. Because that's an opportunity for us to get in touch with our hunger, which is what Jesus did. So we can cultivate the ache. Don't be crushed by this word. Be, be awakened by this word. Amen? Okay, finally, Jesus can say all of this. This is where it gets so good. I could keep on going for 30 minutes, but I'm not going to. Jesus can say all of this, and it's not trite. It's not cheap. It's not condescending like Marx would like to think because Jesus doesn't say it from a throne. He doesn't say it from a philosopher's armchair. He doesn't say it from a feast or a hall of power. Listen to 2 Corinthians. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Bible teaches that Jesus was in the greatest position of power. He had equality with God, <laughs> right? But what does Philippians 2 say? He did not regard it a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant to the point of death. Jesus became hungry. He became poor. He became hated and reviled. The gospels say that Jesus wept. He wept. And then he was killed, all for our sake, so that we could find eternal joy, satisfaction, eternal wealth and riches and honor from God. That's the gospel. It's a good word. All God's people said, amen. amen. That is the gospel. And what does is, what is Philippians 2 go on to say? That Jesus, who took this deep dive into poverty and to hunger because he loved us so much, because he did that, God then raised him up and has seated him at the right hand of the Father. And that is what he will do with us all as well. The fortunes are flipping. Blessed is the hungry. Woe to those who are full now, for you will be hungry later. Jesus loves us that much. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.